thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me today. I also want to thank those who, over the last week or so, have sent an email and indicated that they found value to the recent episodes trying to connect Rousseau's world to evangelicalism of today and cancel culture and what's taking place in our legislative bodies. And I thank you for that. I pray that today is also a blessing to you. And if you find that to be the case, uh, I would ask that you consider uh, sharing it with your friends. The topic for today may sound like an odd one, but we're going to talk about idols. Now, you know, it's easy to think, what are we going to be talking about idols for? That's the stuff in the Old Testament, right? And of course, I think most who listen to this podcast know that we can make idols of many things, but there may be some that we haven't quite thought about or perhaps figured out how to best identify which makes it hard to find the idols in our lives. And I have found some in my life that have caused me to go about repenting in the way that I've done politics and law itself. And we'll, we'll talk about that today. So it's not completely divorced from the concept of God and law and liberty. But I want to begin with quoting a few scripture verses that touch upon idols and then touch upon the kinds of idols that perhaps we don't know that we even have. So let me begin with this passage of Scripture from Hosea chapter 8. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but selected parts from it. And it begins this way. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord. So we're going against the house of the Lord. You'd think, "Ah, that's the one thing God won't have you go against, right? And of course, we know that, in fact, uh, the temple was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed again. But he's telling the people, he's going to come against the house of the Lord because they've transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry out to me, my God, we know you. To which Hosea responds, Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Skipping down a bit, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He's not referring to the idols being cut off, but the people who made the idols. They've made the idols that in order that they they be cut off. That's a frightful thing to consider as a Christian that when, when we create idols, we come under the judgment of God. Now, we're, we, we may not be under the eternal judgment of God, but we come under the judgment of God for the sake of discipline that 
that we might be refined and purified and made into that bride that Jesus came and died for. Hosea continues on. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they're among the Gentiles, like a vessel in which is no pleasure, for they have gone up to Assyria. Like a wild donkey alone by itself, Ephraim has hired lovers. Now, I'm going to come to another passage in Isaiah, but I want to stop here for just a moment. And notice that he says, they've transgressed the covenant, they've rebelled my law, and it says they've rejected the good. Now, why that stuck out in my mind is because I've been talking to some Christian leaders about the fact that when I look into this realm of law and public policy, what's going on right now with the transgender movement, it seems as if the only thing the Christian community is focused on is stopping the bad, but not embracing really the good. In other words, because we've lost our understanding of the good, our appreciation of the good, our love for the good, a love for a biblical cosmology that produces a biblical anthropology, we have these evils in our society. We have these problems in our society, and we just want to stop the problem, not restore the good that's been lost. In a sense, we've rejected the good for the sake of simply stopping the evil. He's saying here, you may stop that evil, but you hadn't killed it at the root. So here, at least in Tennessee, a few years ago, we passed a bill that said boys can't compete against girls in high school sports events. But, well, uh, we're still reaping the whirlwind. The next year, we had to come back and say, well, you can't do it at the collegiate level. And we're still reaping the whirlwind, and now we're having to say, well, you can't, you can't change your gender at the Vanderbilt Hospital. And, and next, we'll have to say, well, you, you can't mix up the genders in the um, dormitories or the women's shelters. You, you see, because we've rejected the good and all we've cared about is stopping the harm, we are sowing to the wind and reaping the whirlwind. The stalk, the thing that we're planting, doesn't actually produce the good. The law never produces the good. The law protects the good, but the law won't produce the good, or righteousness would be by the law. Now, notice what else he says here, because this is going to tie into the next scripture verse. He says, now they're among the Gentiles, like a vessel in which is no pleasure, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. So the reality is we're saying, look, um, you know, we're in sort of a pickle here. Some bad things are going to happen. So we need to gather enough force and enough allies that we need to bring in Syria here to help us because God is not the source of our salvation. Okay, now this theme gets picked up again in Isaiah, and let me turn to it. I'm now looking at Isaiah chapter 30, and verses 1 through 3 say this, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, 
who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. You see, we we start out in a bad place, and we don't repent. We wind up in a worse place, adding sin to sin. And then he goes on and talks about the nature of this counsel that they've taken and the plans they've taken that are not of his spirit. He says, they walk down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Here's the consequence. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. Verse 8, now go write it down before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever. This is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Now, here's, here's how I contextualize what's taking place here. I just got an email again today, get them about every week, pulling together people to talk about transgender legislation. And I was on a call the other day with uh, an expert who had been brought in to help the Christians oppose transgender procedures on minors. And the person was a female who had undergone morphological changes to look like a male, realized that they could never again look like a female. They were stuck. This person had begun transitioning at 42 years of age. And, and, and now this person is saying, children should not be allowed to do this. His advice was, do not now let this get caught up with homosexuality and same-sex marriage. This is a different thing. And I wanted to say, no, they're exactly the same thing. You see, what we've said is that male and female have no objective meaning that's relevant to how we understand who we are, and so therefore they do not inform the meaning of an institution called marriage or matrimony. And all transgenderism is is a further expression and an extension of the principle that rests in same-sex marriage, which rests in homosexuality. I'm not trying to be mean there. I'm just saying they flow together. And this person, rather than saying, you need to understand your anthropology is wrong, you need to come over to our side and you can be forgiven and you can be made whole in a real sense and you'll have a new and glorious body when this old one is, is shed aside in death, but no, we're, we're taking the advice of Egypt and Pharaoh and Assyria because we're looking for allies. Allies that do not share our worldview. Allies that tell us false prophecies. Don't confuse these issues when they are of a piece. And, um, and we're doing it because, well, we want to have allies. It would be great if, rather than making a sound 
argument rooted in biblical anthropology, we had a lot of different people from a lot of different worldviews all coming in and uh, supporting our effort. But, but you know what? That kind of effort will never restore the good. We've rejected the good for the sake of stopping the bad. Now let's continue with Isaiah chapter 30. It says in verse 12, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, the word that God is giving, and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them. See what we're doing is we're saying, I can gather enough power to overcome an understanding of oppression, the other side, and impose what I want on them. He continues in verse 13. Therefore, this iniquity, whoa, what we're doing is iniquity. Yeah, that's what God would call iniquity. Shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. There'll be a point where everything comes down. It will seem like an instant. But see, they've been building it up. And he shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cisterns. Whoa, that's smashed to smithereens. Now here's the answer that God gives. For thus says the Lord, this is verse 15, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not, and you said, no, for we'll flee on horses. And therefore you shall flee, and we'll ride on swift horses. And therefore those who pursue you will be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. So as I read that, I thought, wait a minute, we would never say that, that in returning and rest, you'll be saved. Why would we rest, Dave? We, we have to make tons of phone calls. We have to generate lots of emails. We have to crowd the committee rooms. And, and it's not that we shouldn't do those things. It's not that we shouldn't communicate with our legislative officials, but we can't trust in those things. Now, one other thing that I've noted just this year, and it's really caused me to repent, because see, that's the way I operated in the world of politics myself for the whole time I've been in it. Gather power and do the right thing for Jesus, right? Well, what's happened in Tennessee is they passed a trigger bill a couple of years ago. Many states passed them. It basically said if Roe versus Wade is ever reversed, then we have this really, really strong abortion law. Well, lo and behold, Roe versus Wade got reversed. Now legislators who've been endorsed for several years as being pro-life because they voted right, you know, they voted for the trigger bill, for example. Well, they're filing bills to create exceptions because as one of them said, I never thought Roe would be reversed. I didn't pay that much attention to the bill. And now they're saying, yeah, but you know, God may be sovereign in creating life, but, but ones that he creates by rape, well, he must not have been sovereign in the case of that rape. So th those babies should 
be allowed to be killed. And we're finding out that those people that we've been voting for for years, thinking they're pro-life, helping them build up influence and power and, and uh, you know, PAC funds and all this other stuff. Well, it turns out they're not as pro-life as we thought because they were actually beat into submission. It was not a matter of heart and conscience and mind as much as it was, I can't resist your political power until I think I can create an exception that my constituents want. We, we run, as I said, on these transgender bills looking for allies everywhere rather than say, why don't we make a good argument? That, that grounds why we don't do this, why we don't do these transgender procedures in a sound anthropology. And you know what? Even if the legislature votes us down, we will have borne testimony in a Mars Hill setting to the truth and perhaps started a conversation by which some might come to know the Lord and by which we could begin to restore the notion of what it means to be made in the image of God and created male and female, and that's wonderful. See, we're not interested in trying to really restore that. We're just trying to stop a bad thing. And there is a sense in which our attempt at doing good is in a sense idolatrous because it makes stopping the the bad the greatest good rather than restoring the good that reveals and reflects the glory of God. It makes passing the bill, not restoring the good, the end and the object of our efforts. And when that becomes the case, our end, our telos, our goal is not the glory of God, but the passing of the bill, and that makes it an idol. Now, if that's hard to see, let me give you a couple of other examples. There's a little booklet, the more of, of which I read, the more I, I detest it on trying to give a defense for the creation of civil liberty. I mean, it's just full of what I'd call heresy. But you see, what's happened is we have come to love civil liberty more than we've come to love God. You see, I want my freedom to move about to take a COVID shot or not take a COVID shot and go to jail or not go to jail. See, I, I, I want all this civil freedom, not realizing that the freedom the scripture talks about is epistemological. As Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and that's when you're free, when you know the truth. So you can be Paul and Silas in prison, have no civil liberty, and you can be free because even there you can worship and praise God. But we would say, no, that's not liberty. I have to never be in jail because I have to be able to do what I need to do to be Christian, which almost sounds like my Christianity and my justification is based strictly on my doing. 
I can do the right thing. I might go to jail over it. I might have to pay a fine. I might lose some money. I might lose some civil liberty. But you know what? I can still live and praise God in a smaller house and a different car. I can, you know, go to jail if I have to, and I'll just worship God and tell tell those in prison that there's a liberty that that exists independent of where they're located in these bars. And if that's where God wants me to go to minister, then praise God, that's what I'll do. So see, we can be begin to make our civil liberty the thing we love more than God. We should love our civil liberty for the sake of it providing for us the means by which we can proclaim and live out the glory of God, but I can do that anywhere, right? So in other words, there are things that we can love that become the the end, the telos of our love. And they're not loved for the sake of the greater love of loving God and the glory of God. See, that can be the problem with Christian nationalism. I can love my nation, but the reason I would love my nation is because I want my nation to come to know God and the glory of God. And I can do that without having to be in rivalry with some other nation. But if we're not careful, the love of our nation becomes the end of our love. It's not an instrumental love. I love my nation because it allows me to love God better and introduce more people to God and to, and to talk about and revel in glory and share the glory of God. No, the preservation of the nation becomes its end. And consequently, when that thing is broken like shards of the potter's vessel, we become angry, we become mad, we become disappointed. We say, how could God allow this? And he might just say, well, actually, because you loved it more than me. I've always liked the last line in the poem, The Hound of Heaven, where God's portrayed as a hound that keeps pursuing this person over and over, and, and things just keep going wrong for this person, and, and he's deprived of this and deprived of that. And at the end, when the person is looking at God and saying, why did you take all these things? God says, I took them not for your harm, but that you might find them in my arm. See, that's what God is saying. It's in rest. It's in knowing salvation comes from me. Look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. But if there are idols out there, I'll have to break them so that you'll learn what it is to not sow to the wind, to not produce converts and build churches that have no head to them like grains of wheat. I want to close today with something. This is from Augustine in his book on doctrine. It's chapter 29. He said, God desires our love not for any gain to himself, because what does God need, right? But that those who love him may obtain an eternal reward, even himself whom they love. He continues in chapter 33. When the thing that we love is near us, it is a matter of course that it should bring delight with it. 
And if you pass beyond this delight and make it a means to that which you are permanently to rest in, you're using it and finding your happiness complete in it. So let's see, that's what I was talking about with the nation or civil liberty. We're finding our pleasure, our rest in those things themselves. He said, but if you cling to it and rest in it, finding your happiness complete in it, then you may be truly and properly said to enjoy it. And this we must never do, except in the case of the blessed Trinity, who is the supreme and unchangeable good. In other words, all other things we love should be instrumental loves towards the love of God as the greatest love, but they can't be the object of our love in and of itself because then they become idols and God has to break us of clinging to idolatry. Now, if today seems a little um, oh, unpleasant to think about, so, David, you're saying that these things that I really do enjoy and love, um, maybe they've become idols and maybe God's going to have to take them all away so that we'd find our greatest love is in him. That Oh, that's a pleasant thought. And let me give you a, a, a ray of hope and encouragement in this. It comes from C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock. It's the chapter entitled The Grand Miracle. And I think this is good, so I'm just going to read it to you. I hope you can find it. It is online, his book, God in the Dock. The story of the incarnation is the story of a descent and resurrection. When I say resurrection here, I'm not referring simply to the first few hours or the first few weeks of the resurrection. I am talking of this whole huge pattern of descent down, down, and then up again. What we ordinarily call the resurrection being just, so to speak, the point at which it turns. Think what that descent is, the coming down not only into humanity, but into those nine months which precede human birth, in which they tell us we all recapitulate strange pre-human, subhuman forms of life, and going lower still into being a corpse, a thing which if this ascending movement had not begun, would presently have passed out of the organic altogether and gone back into the inorganic as all corpses do. One has a picture of someone going right down and dredging the sea bottom. One has a picture of a strong man trying to lift a very big complicated burden. He stoops down. He gets himself right under it so that he himself disappears and then he straightens his back and moves off with the whole thing swaying in his shoulders. Or else one has the picture of a diver stripping off garment after garment, making himself naked, then flashing for a moment in the air and then down through the green and warm and sunlit water into the pitch black cold freezing water, down into the mud and slime and then up again, his lungs almost bursting, back again to the green and warm and sunlit water and then at last into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. This thing is human nature, but associated with it, all nature, the new universe. What he's saying is this pattern exists in our world of down, 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 and resurrection. 
cultures go down, 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 and then God brings resurrection. It's what he did with Noah and the ark. And God may be bringing some things down in America, but he always brings resurrection. And in that, we can have confidence and a sure hope because Jesus has gone down, down, down and been raised to the right hand of the Father in all glory and in all honor with a name above every name. So let us not fear what may be coming, but live in faith for what we know will come after. God restores our loves. Well, thank you for joining me for this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I hope you'll join me again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.